What a joy it is to know that all around the globe on the Lord's Day, there are people doing what we're doing right now. They are sitting at the feet of Jesus, studying his word, praying that the Holy Spirit would come and bring power to it, bring us to life. So let's pray as we go before God's word. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Acts chapter 10, verse 44, through chapter 11, verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began, to, and, ex, began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. This past Sunday, Pastor John preached on Peter's message to Cornelius, which immediately precedes this passage. It was to Cornelius, to his household, and to his close friends. And what Peter proclaimed to them was the gospel. It was a clear and simple message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. It ended with a call to place faith in Jesus and to receive forgiveness of sins. If we look at it, there is no rhetorical frill to Peter's sermon at all. It's just a straightforward gospel message, one in which the Holy Spirit was pleased to use to bring the hearers to faith in Christ. This, after all, is the mission of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will guide you to all truth. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The work of the Holy Spirit is, therefore, as J.I. Packer put it, to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, in other words, among other things, reveals Jesus to us. He makes him real to us. He shows us his glory and opens our eyes to it in a way that inclines our hearts to adore him and place our trust in him, that moves our will to desire to follow him in faith and obedience. <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit was pleased to use Peter's message that day in this way because Peter's message exalted the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had faithfully proclaimed Christ to Cornelius and his household. He had given verbal affirmation to the truth of who Jesus was and is, and the Holy Spirit came and added power to that message. And the result was what is often called the Gentile Pentecost. And we see why it's referred to in this way when we read this text, verses 44 through 46 of chapter 10 state, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. The Gentiles here have the same experience as the believers who were gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. It's the same language we find in Acts 2. And there's something to be said here about trusting in the Holy Spirit to work through the simplicity of the gospel message. Oftentimes we feel like we need to add to the gospel message to somehow make Jesus attractive to unbelievers. What it does is stop us from ever sharing the gospel because we don't feel like we have adequate words. Acts 10, though, reveals that no frills are needed. The Holy Spirit is pleased to come in power where Jesus Christ is exalted through the simplicity of the gospel message. But I want to focus this morning our attention on the effect of the Holy Spirit coming and blessing Peter's sermon. 
What did this clear and simple gospel proclamation produce in and through the power of the Holy Spirit? Secondarily, what does it mean for us? So there are four things I would like to highlight that happened as a result of the Holy Spirit's work here at the end of uh, Acts chapter 10. So first, the Holy Spirit brings about conversion. The Holy Spirit brings about conversion. That the Gentiles repented of their sins and placed faith in Jesus Christ is only first implied here at the end of chapter 10. It isn't explicitly stated that this is what has occurred, although we can assume this based on Peter's response. Later in chapter 11, though, when Peter responded to those in Jerusalem who called him to account for his interaction with the Gentiles, sharing with them how the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles in the same way that the Holy Spirit had fallen on them, Peter's critics responded by declaring, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And that phrase, repentance that leads to life, is key. This is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance unto life. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Through the exaltation of Jesus Christ in the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit had led these Gentiles to a godly sorrow of their sins, had created a change in their hearts, minds, and wills, had turned them from their sin and toward God to pursue him through faith, in Jesus Christ. They had, in fact, repented of their sins and placed faith in Jesus Christ. And this work occurred through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the interesting thing here is the reality that these Gentiles had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but it is attested through external means. How did Peter and those with him know that the Gentiles had come to saving faith? Because, as verse 46 states, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So second, the Holy Spirit gave them gifts, primarily seen here in the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, as Presbyterians, we might want to quickly rush by this fact. The gift of speaking in tongues might be one that brings us a little discomfort, but it is not insignificant here. Speaking in tongues is, after all, this very same gift that the believers gathered in Jerusalem received on the day of Pentecost. It will, by the way, be the same gift received in Acts 19 to those in Ephesus who come to saving faith and receive the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I mentioned a few weeks ago that some tried to use these three instances as evidence to argue that it should be considered normative for every believer as though you have not received the Holy Spirit unless you have been given the gift of tongues. 
but we need to be very careful to interpret this passage, this passage and the other two in their context. So we should realize a few things here. First, the gift of tongues is significant here for the same reason it is significant in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, which, by the way, is the same reason why it is significant in Acts 19. If we look closely at these instances in which speaking in tongues is the result of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, then what we find is that the gift of speaking in tongues comes at crucial moments in redemptive history in which the gift has specific and special purpose. In these moments, the gospel is not only communicated widely to people of many different languages, but it also gives witness to the reality that God and the power of the Holy Spirit is creating a unified body of believers in Christ from among people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is what Pentecost did. It is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. It was gathering the nations that had been scattered as a result of their languages being confused. Uh, Pastor John made very clear last Sunday the significance of this passage uh, in Acts 10 as it relates to the Gentiles now being welcomed into the family of God. And we should remember It is to the church in Ephesus that the Apostle Paul stresses what? The unity in the Spirit. And there he proclaims that those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The gathering of God's family across previously established boundaries is the context of all three of these passages. And this is why the Holy Spirit gives this specific gift in these instances. And this is very, very important. It's a very, very important lesson here in this passage. If you read this passage and miss the emphasis that the Gentiles have received the very same spirit as the Jews, thus making them spiritual equals in the faith, then you haven't read the passage very closely. Peter's critics at the beginning of chapter 11 were upset with Peter that he had had fellowship with the Gentiles. Specifically, what were they upset that he had done? Was it baptize them? No. They were upset that he had eaten with them, that he had broken kosher laws. This is why they are upset. So Luke is making clear through this passage the prejudice that was held against interacting with the Gentiles. After Peter testified concerning what had occurred, he exclaimed, though, if then God gave the same gift to them, meaning the gift of the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You see, Peter understood that God was expanding his church and that he shouldn't stand in the way of God's redemptive work. But not only this, he was actually called to participate in it. In this case, this came through the baptism of these Gentiles, which would provide an outward invisible sign that they had been received into the family of God. The fact that they received the gift of speaking in tongues, though, helped 
to establish this truth of what God was doing. But while we should acknowledge that the gift of speaking in tongues came at these specific moments in redemptive history, we should next also realize that there were many other conversion stories and acts where speaking in tongues is absent. The conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 is one of them. The conversion of Saul in Acts 9 is another. Nor do we see the gift of speaking in tongues given in the conversion stories we find in Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 16, Acts 17. You get the point. So this fuller picture that we see being painted in Acts corresponds to what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12. He explicitly tells us there that not every believer is given the gift of tongues. However, he does say in the same chapter that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, each believer is given a spiritual gift through the Holy Spirit to be used for the benefit of the body of Christ and the advancement of God's kingdom in the world. Not all have received the gift of speaking in tongues in the same way that not all have been made apostles or prophets or teachers or healing workers. So the last thing we need to realize here is that since spiritual gifts are given to every believer, we can look at Acts 10 and acknowledge that spiritual gifts in general are evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit. It might not be speaking in tongues, but it might be the gift of teaching or hospitality or service. This means that we shouldn't elevate any one gift, especially in regard to seeking evidence of true faith, but we also shouldn't minimize the importance of spiritual gifts. They are evidence, as shown here in Acts 10, of receiving the Holy Spirit. Next, the converted Gentiles exhibited a desire to praise God when they received the Holy Spirit. Not only were they speaking in tongues, but chapter 10, verse 46 states that they were extolling God. They were magnifying God. They were praising him for his greatness. This is literally what the Greek word translated here as extol means. And we see this again and again in scripture where people are converted to Jesus Christ. We see it in the Gospels by many who encountered Jesus, by those who were healed by Jesus or set free from the oppression of a demon or who witnessed his resurrection. And we've seen it through Acts thus far. We saw it in the believers at Pentecost who, among other things that we previously noted at the end of chapter 2 of Acts, were praising God. In Acts 3, we saw it in the lame beggar who, upon being healed, immediately went to the temple where he was walking and leaping and praising God. And the result of the people having heard the apostles' message and witnessed the power of God was that there were many who were praising God. We will continue to see it as we move through Acts It shouldn't surprise us that this would be a very natural outworking of being converted to Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Being converted to Jesus means being set free from sin, being set at peace with God, being empowered to live in joyful obedience. What would we expect then of one who experiences this reality, being filled with the Holy Spirit, but that they would desire to worship God, to worship God for his grace and goodness, to worship God because this is what he calls his people to do, to worship God because this is what we have been created to do. We will worship something. We will either worship the things of this world and or ourselves, or we will worship the Lord. But someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit and who loves the Lord will desire to be in his presence in the company of believers, will desire to tell of his excellencies, will desire to worship him and adore him. We see this in King David in the Psalms, Psalm 27 4 states one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple it's the one thing David professes to seek after to worship the Lord So John Piper correctly observes the heart in which the Holy Spirit has been poured out will stop magnifying self and start magnifying God. Heartfelt praise and worship is the mark of a real experience of the Holy Spirit. In other words, our desire to worship will provide evidence that we have received the Holy Spirit. It did here in Acts 10. And as I look around at the state of the church in America, I have to wonder if the COVID pandemic hasn't revealed a lack of heartfelt worship by many self-professed believers. What many have observed is that worship attendance took a steep nosedive during the pandemic. And that was to be expected, right? There were lots of unknowns about the virus and churches tried to take proper precautions, which inherently meant in many churches that in-person worship opportunities became more limited. But what many churches are now observing, even as COVID numbers have declined, vaccinations have become widely available. Many have developed natural immunity through previous infection is that there are still many who had stopped attending corporate worship and who haven't returned to worship with worship through live stream aside. The realization has been setting in for many months now in churches across the country that many of those who haven't returned probably won't return. And at the risk of oversimplifying a very complex situation, I would like to suggest that at least one of the major causes for this might just be that there are many who had been attending worship who really didn't have any desire to worship. They were showing up out of habit or for reasons of social acceptability or from a desire to have some sort of community or because of some sense of duty. But they weren't showing up out of a heartfelt desire to worship. And now they have been given an excuse to forego worship. The habit has been broken. Social acceptability no longer applies. The pleasure of community is outweighed by risk. The sense of duty can be rationalized away. 
and chances are they won't return. If this is indeed the case, could it be that many of these self-professed believers had never really received the Holy Spirit? Lastly, we find in the converted Gentiles a desire to grow in the knowledge of the truth. We find in the Gentiles a desire to grow in the knowledge of the truth. Look at the final verse of chapter 10, verse 48. The new Gentile believers asked Peter to remain with them for some days. We can only assume that they desired for him to remain with them in order to learn from him, to hear from him concerning his time spent with the Lord Jesus Christ during the earthly ministry of Jesus and after his death and resurrection. And this is a desire that grows within those who have truly placed faith in Jesus Christ. For the Holy Spirit works in us to stir a desire in us to know more and more the object of our faith. We desire more and more of Jesus. We want to know more and more of Jesus. We want an accurate picture of who he is that we might rightly worship him and follow him. But it isn't just head knowledge. We desire to grow in intimate knowledge of him by experiencing more of him, more of his grace, more of his love, more of his truth, more of his power. And as we grow more in this knowledge, we grow more in obedience. This is part of the natural progression of the Christian faith. Faith leads to a desire for knowledge, which leads to living in a state of steadily increasing holiness as we grow more in the likeness of Jesus. Our minds are renewed, our hearts are transformed, and this works its way out in our living. Peter will later write about confirming our calling and election in Jesus Christ through this progression. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter here is not preaching works righteousness. He is merely saying that in one who has received the Holy Spirit, the natural outworking of faith is a desire for knowledge which leads to godliness. And it shouldn't surprise us that besides worship, obedience is the other mark that is consistently seen in those who have received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 5, when Peter and the other apostles who had been arrested by the Sadducees are questioned, how did they respond? 
We must obey God rather than men. And after professing Jesus to be the resurrected Lord, they declared, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Obey in this sentence is in the present ongoing tense. God gave the Spirit to those who are obeying him. Obedience, then, is evidence of being filled with the Spirit. And we immediately see the beginning of this process from faith to knowledge to obedience in the lives of the Gentile converts in this Acts 10 passage. And perhaps some of you experienced this when you came to faith in Christ. This insatiable desire to know more and more about Jesus. I frequently hear this from folks who are sharing their conversion story. They talk about how after being made alive in Christ, they can't get enough of reading the Bible. They can't get enough of reading books that help them to understand the truths of Scripture in greater clarity. They can't get enough of attending Bible studies in Sunday school and small groups. Every opportunity to learn and grow in faith is eagerly laid hold of. It's evidence of having received the Holy Spirit. And so, with the many ways that these Gentiles demonstrate that they have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit has indeed fallen on them through the gift of speaking in tongues, through their eagerness to worship the Lord, through their desire to continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, how then could Peter's critics at the beginning of chapter 11 argue with the reality of what Peter saw in the life of the Gentiles? Look at their response to Peter's testimony of what he saw and experienced with the Gentiles. Chapter 11, verse 18 states, When they heard these things, they fell silent. They could bring no further accusations against Peter. They could do nothing but affirm that the Gentiles had received the exact same spirit they had because there was clear evidence of a dramatic change in the lives of these Gentiles that matched their own experience. And I wonder if we look at our own lives, can we affirm the same thing? Have I received the Holy Spirit? Have I been baptized in his power? Is there evidence in my life of this? And perhaps it seems like a bizarre question for us, especially those who profess to be Christians, especially Reformed Christians. But in Acts chapter 19, the passage I referred to earlier, the other passage where those converted to Christ receive the Holy Spirit and are given the gift of tongues, we find a very curious situation. The Apostle Paul finds in Ephesus what are described as disciples. And he asked them what seems to be a strange question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What kind of question is that, we might wonder. After all, doesn't the fact that I believe in Jesus mean I have received the Holy Spirit? It is a fact of doctrine, right? You can't believe without the Holy Spirit. By nature of having belief, one must have received the Holy Spirit. But those described as disciples in Acts 19 responded, No, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
it's revealed that they had believed the message that John the Baptist had proclaimed, that a Messiah was coming. They had heard the pressing need to repent, so they had received John's baptism of repentance. But in all probability, they had never truly heard how John's message had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They had never truly heard the gospel and actually placed faith in the person of Jesus Christ and received the Holy Spirit. So while they could be described as disciples, they had not yet been filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in this context in which we live, where conversion has been so redefined as to be simply a decision that you make to believe in Jesus, then perhaps this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, is an appropriate question. The question for each of us is this, do I simply have some Christian ideas in my head or have I truly placed faith in Jesus Christ and received the Holy Spirit in my heart? And one of the ways that we can answer this question is asking ourselves, what evidences are there in my life that I have in fact received the Holy Spirit? Because what we find here in Acts 10 and throughout the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit does not simply come and fill us in a way that we are completely unconscious that anything has occurred. Conversion to Christ is not something that happens with no noticeable change occurring in our lives. And while I have criticized the charismatic movement for asserting that certain spiritual gifts or religious experience are the mark or marks of a true believer, we need to understand that what the charismatic movement is pushing back against is an understanding that one can have a saving faith that is merely declared with no experience or evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. As though what saves us is a mere intellectual assent to some propositions about the person of Jesus Christ. So they are absolutely correct in their emphasis that receiving the Holy Spirit produces demonstrable change in our lives. As John Piper puts it, the really valuable contribution of the charismatic renewal is their relentless emphasis on the truth that receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is a real life-changing experience. Christianity is not merely an array of glorious ideas. It is not merely the performance of rituals and sacraments. It is the life-changing experience of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. It shouldn't be lost on us then that there was an expectation in the New Testament that someone who truly placed faith in Jesus Christ would be baptized by the Holy Spirit and that this reality of being filled with the Holy Spirit would bring regeneration, renewal, and power. There would be noticeable evidence of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't necessarily speaking in tongues, but it was there nonetheless. So the question that this passage presents us with this morning, the passage leaves us with this question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? And I pray that this is a question that we will wrestle with in the days to come and that we will indeed find that we are filled with the Holy Spirit.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and to fall afresh upon us this day. Break through the hardness of our hearts, convict us of our sins, revealing to us the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, leading us to repentance and faith. Stir within us, growing our affections for Jesus. Fill us with your redemptive power. Give give us gifts to serve you. Grant us desire to worship you. Spur us on to continue to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. For we pray this in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe.